The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, and welcome to Tech Trader on Barron's Live. I'm Barron's Associate Editor, Eric Sabitz. Welcome back for another uh, another edition of the show. Uh, together with me today is Amit Daryanani, who's the Senior Managing Director of Evercore and their hardware analyst. Uh, he's a return guest to, to the show. Um, I think you did this about a year ago or so. And uh, Amit, welcome to the, to the program. Thank you for having me. So uh, we are on the verge of earnings season. Uh, we're, we're actually, um, uh, if you think of tech earnings season, more or less starting with Netflix, which is tomorrow. Uh, that that's uh, that we we're we're right on the precipice here, and then of course we'll get a flood tide of earnings announcements over the next couple of weeks. How are you feeling more before we get into some specifics? Um, give me your general sense of what we're likely to see as the next few weeks unfold. Yeah, absolutely, uh, Eric. I would say. Uh, Caution. I think. I think. I think that's kind of maybe the, the tone that is what we're going to get from a lot of companies. A lot of caution. A lot of uncertainty heading into year end and potentially into calendar twenty four. Right. And, and if you know, maybe I'll say think about this in three buckets. Uh, maybe four. Fourth one will be a positive one. Uh, you know, the three buckets I say is one is consumer spending. What is going to happen over there? Uh, Apple iPhones is a big data point. Then I think the worry over there is listen these high interest rates, a cooling economy. Does that start to hurt the consumer spending? Do they start to scale back on what they want to buy? What does that mean for iPhones, right? So I'd say that's one bucket to worry about. Uh, the second one is enterprise spending, right? And I think enterprises in general have become a lot more cautious and diligent in how they want to spend money, especially when they don't know how what's gonna what macro recovery is gonna look like, right? So I think enterprise purses are getting a bit more tightened. You need more signatures to get a deal done, things like that. Uh, the third one is telco companies. Right, by and large, I think service providers have scaled back their spending very dramatically after 5G. Uh, we have seen a lot of negative pre-announcements actually related to the slowdown in service providers so far. Uh, you know, in the last couple of weeks ahead of this earnings season, and then the fourth one, maybe on the positive side, I think will be uh, uh, cloud spending and AI spending. Right, I think that's the one thing that investors and companies will continue to focus on. That piece, I think, you know, Eric should be more positively biased. So. Companies that have either networking or compute tied to AI-centric clusters, uh, like a Arista network, for example, should probably continue to see some nice positive momentum. But I'd say overarchingly, the team will be a cautious tone heading into your end. Okay. So I, I want to start with a piece of news uh, on a company that historically I probably wouldn't have brought up on this call, which is a company called NetScout, not a company I spend a lot of time thinking about, honestly. But they reported... Um, results yesterday and uh, issued a sort of stark warning. You wrote a little bit about this this morning in a research note. Tell us a little bit about why this miss by this little company uh, actually carries some reverberations for other players that are a little bigger. Yeah, uh, 
you and Eric, I'll tell you, I don't cover net scout, so maybe I want to give that as a caveat. And what I'll tell you, I don't know if it's net scout, but but bear with this list now. Uh, just top of my head, I can think about you know A10 Networks, Cambium, Belden Cable, Net Scout, Atran, Ericsson. Six top of my head uh, companies that have all negatively pre-announced in the last two weeks. Call it right. Uh, in the part, I would say that maybe it was unique with Net Scout compared to everyone else is. Uh, you know, NetScout actually called up a, a elongating enterprise cycle. Uh, deals on the enterprise side starting to slow down a little bit, getting pushed out. Uh, and they, they do a good bit of security business, which you and I have always been kind of ingrained to think that security spending is always un, 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 uninterrupted and there's no bounds to it. Uh, so maybe the part that was unique with NetScout is it seems like it's not just telco service provider. It seems to be enterprise and it seems to be around the security bucket, which I think is rare of late. That's really interesting. Okay. Um, and that has implications for kind of a whole set of companies that, that could be affected by the same dynamics, I presume. Absolutely, right? I mean, if, if again, you know, the, the, the issue with these data points, is, you know, all six of these companies other than Ericsson, I think, are fairly small in size. Uh, and so the question is, you know, are the bigger companies seeing the same thing, right? Or is the pause in spending more SMB, SME, small, medium business, small, medium enterprise phenomena versus a large enterprise phenomena? So, you know, things need to be flushed out a bit. But, you know, historically, it has been the smaller enterprises that have been more quicker to react to a changing macro environment than a bigger enterprise. So it, it certainly bears watching. And it's rare that you've had this many pre-announcements, I would say, happen into your earnings cycle historically. Right. Okay. So let's let's go to the other end of the scale, the market cap scale, and talk a little bit about Apple. Apple is uh, actually still a few weeks away in terms of their earnings announcement. They're actually a little later uh, than uh, some of the about a week after most of the other um, uh, large caps. Maybe because it's their fiscal year end. Uh, I'm not sure why they're late, but in any case. Uh, there's a lot of debate about Apple right now. I mean, of course, we're still talking about, you know, by far the largest company uh, by market cap, still, uh, you know, obviously a fantastic business year to date. The stock has actually done fine. Um, but there, there's some nervousness about Apple. They're, they're not really growing uh, right now at the top line. And uh, there seems to be a lot of debate about how iPhone 15 is going so far. What's your what's your th th thinking about Apple as we head into earnings? And in particular, how do you think iPhone 15 is doing? Yeah, um, boy, how iPhone 15 are doing is a literally a, a, a couple of trillion dollar question, I think, Eric. Uh, <laughs> You know, you just want to say, uh, listen, I think so far if I stack this up to the last iPhone cycle, it seems okay, right? Um, I think North America is doing slightly better. Europe is doing slightly better, maybe in line. China data points are somewhat weaker, right? But, but generally, I would say this seems to be very akin to last year's cycle. It's early, but that's what it seems. Um, the one thing we do see with this one is ASPs are moving up a little bit, right? So we are sense, based on our survey work, I would say, Eric, is, ASPs on this iPhone cycle might be up three, four percent. And uh, I presume that's people are buying yeah. the, the people are buying the the Pro and Pro Max are opting for absolutely. the iPhone phones. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, Apple is 
I think uh, in a very thoughtful manner, driving more innovation on the high end rather than low end, the Pro Pro Max to your point. Uh, the Apple also took away the low end 128 gig SKU for the Pro Max, so you kind of have to you're forced to buy a hundred dollar more expensive phone as a base level, right? So things like that they're doing, um, which you know is helping ASP. So my gut is this: an iPhone 15 units might be flat to up one percent, ASP is up three percent. It might be a three, four, five percent kind of growth here. Okay, so now, so well, and then so the larger question, right, is what. What are the ingredients that might drive uh, a return to you know reasonable top line growth for Apple? And you know we do have uh, we have a new product coming, right? We have the Vision Pro goggles that are going to arrive sometime early in the new year. We don't know exactly when, uh, but it just doesn't feel like there's a lot of obvious drivers uh, for the business here. And I'm I'm curious if you see uh if you see others maybe that might you know return the top line to you know i don't know low to mid single digit growth again yeah um so on iphones right if i maybe deconstruct this for 30 seconds iphones is a low single digit growth business right everyone that wants an iphone has it it's a replacement cycle story the only way you drive replacement is through massive innovation mm -hmm. there isn't that much of it happening right now right uh, same time, the consumer is more constrained, right, uh, which also pushes out the replacement side, right? So that's iPhones. I would say services and variables, Eric, that's actually doing much better, right? So I think one of the positives this quarter and beyond that will be, I think the services business is accelerating rather well. I think variables is doing well. That could, you know, it's, that, that's essentially a monetization of the install base. The third vector that you kind of got to watch for is, you know, can Apple drive outsized growth in a new product category, which is the Vision Pro, as you just called out? Right. That, I think, will be the key for them to drive this outsized growth. But but in all fairness, the analogy I draw is like the Vision Pro is kind of like five years uh, ahead of mass production, right, or mass adoption. Yes. Um, if, if you've seen the movie Wall Street, uh, this is kind of like the Michael Douglas brick phone right now. It took a while for it to become an iPhone, right? But I think that's how early you are in the cycle. Right, right. But then, so the question then becomes... Um, you know what? What? Why? Why do you? Why own the stock here? Why buy the stock here? Is this? You know, it's not cheap statistically. It's not really growing. The drivers are a little further out. Except, you know, as you say, perhaps on services. What's the What's the bull case for Apple here? Yeah, uh, boy. Uh, listen, uh, this is a question every investor will ask me. So it, it's a it's a it's a good one. Uh, and, you know, listen, here's what I tell folks. I'm like, listen, the reason you buy Apple is it's a low single digit, three, four, five percent kind of top line growth business. Maybe it's 9 10% EPS growth because they do do a lot of buybacks. There's some good margin expansion. But, you know, it's a 10% EPS free cash flow business, um, Eric, that, you know, and the beauty of Apple is I think today they can do this 10%, 11% EPS growth with high consistency, with low volatility, with high predictability, and all the money they generate, the $100 billion plus of free cash flow, Eric, comes back to you, the shareholder, they don't do it. They do not invest in the metaverse, which may or may not be a good investment. They don't right. put their money in chat GPT, which may or may not be a good investment. It all comes back to you. So the reason people like Apple, especially when you think about the context of the world is uneven, there's a challenging macro environment, Apple almost becomes a bit more of a safe haven. And historically, safe haven consumer staple-like assets, so think about Procter & Gamble or Coca-Cola kind of thing, they do trade at 25, 30 times earnings. And if you give that kind of multiple to Apple, 
you could justify the stock all the way to two hundred, two hundred ten dollars. I think that's the bull case on it. It's it's a good defensive story right now. Right. Okay. So I want to come back to a name that you mentioned earlier, uh, uh, which is um, Arista. Uh, Arista, of course, is a networking hardware company. They have a lot of exposure to the cloud, in particular to Meta and Microsoft, which I think together is something like, I don't know, half their business, roughly, something like that. Um, yep. you're, you're, you're not only bullish on, on Arista, you, you set a, um, uh, what, uh, like a uh, what's that called? Like a, um, a short-term um, uh, tactical uh, outperform rating on the stock, expecting that the stock is poised to move. What do you think happens with Arista's results and um how are they uh how are they poised here where they they serve both like a conventional like uh you know enterprise networking business but also have a lot of exposure to the cloud yeah absolutely and you so, i mean you, you're right actually we, we, we like to talk longer term and we actually have a bullish bias on this very near term into this owning cycle as well um the near term stuff kind of is more reflection of if i think about the world being a bit more challenging a bit more cautious into this earning cycle, um, the one place where we think spending remains unconstrained, if you may, is the cloud side, is these hyperscalers that Arista, to your point, has half the exposure to, half the revenues come from there, right? So near term, I think they will beat and raise while everyone else may generously beat and maintain or miss and maintain, something like that. That's going to be good for them. Longer term, I think, you know, what, what Arista does is help provide the network, actually help build a network for these AI clusters, right? Mm -hmm. and, and the way I kind of would love for investors and folks to think about this is what you're doing with AI is almost doubling or tripling the amount of data intensity and data velocity in your data centers, right? So think about a freeway and you all of a sudden start putting three, four times the number of cars in it. You will mm -hmm. end up with traffic jams like no tomorrow. The only way for you to solve that in a real infrastructure on the highway or in an AI data center is you need to either add more lanes to your highway or more ports in your data center Right. Or you got to do it in a more thoughtful manner, which is software differentiated, uh, which is where Arista's EOS software really stands out because they can help you orchestrate and navigate this data in a much more cohesive manner. If they can do all of that, you know, Eric, this is a story we think that can do high teens to 20% top line growth for the next three years. I think you can have a $10 EPS number two, three years out in calendar 26. And if I can get there, this has never been a cheap stock, but on a 30 multiple, which is what it trades at, this is a $300 stock, you know, 18 months, two years out versus trading at 190, 195 right now. Wow. That's so great. 50% upside basically from here. Yep. Do, do you see, um, are there other infrastructure players that you think are similarly well positioned? How, how do you think about, you know, say Cisco or Juniper or some of the other larger players in the field? Um, not as not as exposed, obviously, to the cloud uh, opportunity, maybe it's Arista, but I wonder how you think about their competitors positioning here. Uh, and in particular, given the kind of caution you mentioned about enterprise spending, where a lot of the other players are maybe proportionally more exposed to data center spending. Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, to be fair, I think you know someone like Cisco does have a really interesting, growing hyperscale business on these AI data centers, right? So they, they do have a bit of a nice presence there. Uh, but you know, hyperscale for Cisco is three billion dollars. 
on a 50-ish billion revenue stream, right? It's six percent of revenues versus the RSI. It's 50 percent, right? Right. And so I'd say, you know, yes, Cisco has a really good story. And if I had to kind of think about it, I'd say, you know, Arista and Vorte, which is a different company, they do like data center management, power management, are probably the big beneficiaries in my coverage from AI deployments. It's Arista and Vorte. And mm-hmm. then I would say there, there are secondary beneficiaries like a Cisco, uh, like a Dell Technologies, for example, uh, that, that should have some benefits over time. Uh, IBM might be, Eric, in that secondary benefit as well. Uh, Juniper, Canally, uh, their exposure tends to skew a lot more to its tier two cloud companies. Uh, so they do less with Meta. They do a lot more with uh, Twitter, if you want to think about it that way. Uh, and so, you know, maybe eventually they'll have a story there, but it's not going to be in the foreseeable future, at least from an AI perspective. Okay. So an- another uh, another uh, relatively early reporter in the cycle is going to be IBM. And, you know, IBM is... Uh, it's a company that uh, I've actually, uh, full disclosure, written quite bullishly about a few times in Barron's, and uh, you know they've they've gone from a, a under their uh, uh, under Arvind Krishna, their current CEO, they've they've made a lot of progress turning the company from basically a zero to negative grower to um, a you know a, a, a back into growth mode. They've right size the company they spun off Kindrel. they're doing better and they're making a big push in ai and i i wonder um i wonder how you think about the company here they're still obviously have a lot of exposure to enterprise spending they still have a big consulting business um and and but there is sort of there there's some gleam on ibm that was not there before as they think about this opportunity in AI, they've remade their AI business. This this uh, uh, this uh, platform they call Watson X uh, to do enterprise AI. How do you think about IBM, both in terms of what we might see this quarter, and then uh, going forward from here? Yeah, you know, um, we'll do, we'll do the near term stuff, and I'll dig into the longer term narrative as well. You know, listen, in, in near term, I think IBM actually might be a bit more defendable versus not. Uh, largely because, you know, 60, 65% Eric of what IBM does from a profit basis actually comes from long-term reoccurring contracts, right? right. Uh, think about the consulting contracts or software ELAs. You can't move them around very quickly even if the macro is bad, right? Uh, and, and so I actually think the numbers may be in a much more predictable range versus not. Uh, optically, they actually close the Aptio transaction that they did on the software side a little quicker than expected. And right. so that will come position. into the numbers as well. Right, that's an acquisition. Exactly. exactly. And so, like, actually, near term, you know, my gut is numbers will be in line to maybe slightly better, right? And maybe you get a bit of a relief out of it. Uh, now, longer term, which I think is a very fascinating question on IBM, because to your point, it's always been left for dead. There's a lot of negative implications or uh, memories people have on IBM. I actually think, uh, you know, everyone is really excited about AI. I spent some time talking about Arista and the AI investments that are needed and so on. Uh, NVIDIA is doing really well in it. But, but the reality is once you have these AI clusters, the deployment and using of AI to enable labor productivity is a very complicated decision uh, and a process, right? So I might have an AI model, but how do I deploy it in a work stream at a big Fortune 100 company so I can really get this 20, 30, 40% labor savings that I was, I was being promised? My gut is if I go back and I've spent some time looking at the history on this, uh, public cloud was a big deal, so only manifested itself in a big way. But one of the bigger beneficiaries of public cloud, Eric, was Accenture, because they were the consultants that enabled the public cloud deployments for bigger enterprises.
Right. I think when it comes to AI, IBM might be the consultant of choice that can help you deploy this. Uh, because if you're if you're a Fortune 100 company, you're Pfizer, you probably don't want to run your large language generative models on uh, Microsoft Azure or AWS. You probably want to run it on your own data center, keep the learnings for yourself. Mm-hmm. But it's not easy to do these things. I think IBM will actually show up in a very profoundly positive manner as an enabler of uh, AI deployments and enabler of productivity with these enterprises. So longer term, I actually think it's a very fascinating opportunity that they have. Can they execute to it remains to be seen, but I think the opportunity is a lot better than people give them credit for right now. Yeah, yeah, I tend to agree with you. I would note by, note, note by the way that as a bonus, uh, the stock has a nearly 5% dividend yield. Um, so you get, you, get a, you get a little bit of payback while you're waiting, uh, which helps a little bit as well. So, so I want to talk. Yeah. yeah. So one other thing that's uh, that's happening this week is another company uh, that's also trying to make turn itself into an AI play, which is HP Enterprise. They have an analyst meeting, I think, on Thursday, Friday. It's this week, Thursday, October nineteenth, on Thursday, Eric. Thursday. What uh, What are you expecting from HP Enterprise? This is a company that like doesn't get a huge amount of attention or, and arguably, respect from the street. It's a very low PE. Uh, PE uh, enterprise um, company that does a whole bunch of things, including high performance computing. They own the old Cray business. They have a networking business. Uh, they do um, a few other things. Um, but they they also have been trying to position themselves as an AI play. And I, I wonder how you think about HPE and um, and what you might expect to hear from them later this week. Yeah, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to think. There, there are almost like two parts of HPE, HP Enterprise that you have to think about. There's a, there's a good side and then there's a not so good side for them, uh, in my opinion. In, in to your point, like it, it, despite everything you kind uh, of mentioned, those are all the good parts of the story. You know, 55, 60 percent of their revenue stream tends to come from servers, compute, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they tend to make x86 servers, uh, Intel-based servers, Eric, uh, for enterprises, right? And one of the things we've seen with all these AI deployments is, you know, these IT budgets are not growing up into the right. They're still relatively constrained, which essentially means that if I'm spending a lot more money on these AI clusters, I'm, I'm taking money away from somewhere. I think that somewhere has been x86 servers that HP does a lot of, right? Uh, and so that's been a bit of a dead weight for the company. Um, the flip side, though, to your point is, um, they ha- they have a remarkable networking business, right? It's about actually half their profits, 20% of the revenues, but half the profits come from networking, and that business has been growing 40, 50% a year. Uh, we've actually done these analyses in the past, Eric, where we said, you know what, if you actually did some of the parts and looked at things like Arista and Cisco and Juniper, I think you could assign the entire market cap of HP Enterprise to their networking business right now. Uh, and so that alone could be a pretty big tailwind for them uh, if you think about it that way. Uh, so I think that's the opportunity that they have. Um, the question over time for them will be, you know, is the rest of the business a bit of a subtraction or, you know, can, can they keep growing the rest of the pie as well pretty well? Do, do you think they, I mean, is there an argument for them to do, I don't know, let's not call it a breakup story, but maybe to to, to do some sort of strategic uh, transaction uh, to realize the value of that uh, that business, which uh, once was a public company, right? 
Yeah, um, you know, I, I struggle with that. I mean, so I should say this. Uh, I, I think on it. It was Aruba, Aruba, by the way. I couldn't think of the name. Uh, Aruba was the company they bought that turned into their novelty business. Anyway. Yes, as, uh, uh, absolutely, uh, Eric. So Aruba is this intelligent edge asset that they have right now that's doing extremely well for them, right? Uh, um, you know, I, I, I think we have done this work in the last, you know, 12, 15 months saying, I don't know, Eric, the stock's at $16, 17 If yeah. you actually did a, some of the parts and there's different assets you could look at very easily, this asset's worth in the 30 somewhere, like $30, $35 kind of zone, right? There's only a very attractive some of the parts you can run on this. Uh, you know, the question always becomes, does the management team really want to do it or not? And I think this management team is more hesitant and would rather keep all of this in-house rather than not. And their rationale, I think, would be, and they would tell you this uh, if you ask them that they believe Aruba Intelligent Edge Eric is their crown jewel, and they don't want to, they do not want to part with it. Uh, and so I think that's their perspective on this asset right now. I wonder if there's an argument that they go the other, like sort of take it the opposite approach, which is to spin off some of the slower growing pieces. You know, as, as you mentioned, right? They have like a super competing business. They they have some other moving parts, and I wonder whether the uh, and in fact, they actually have, I think it's it's not well known, but like they have actually some of the fastest, most powerful uh, uh, supercomputers in, in the world the, deployed in the field. But I, I wonder, but that's not a super grow, uh, fast growing business. So I, I, I wonder, like, maybe that's the right thing to do. Maybe they should approach it from the other way around um, and maybe keep it. Yeah, I mean, listen, there's, there's a few different ways you can do this, right? I mean, it's storage, for example, that you own a reasonably good set of storage assets. You have peers like in NetApp, like a pure storage, you could stack it up to, uh, <clears throat> you know, they own compute, which, you know, I think there's actually an interesting angle that Dell and HP Enterprise have, which is they actually might become, uh, you know, they, they may actually have growth vectors now with AI servers, right? So they do most of the business as CPU servers, but they can start building GPU servers as well. That could be interesting. Uh, Bobby, you're totally right. This high-performance compute stuff, they're one of the best uh, super comp uh, you know, super compute HPC assets that are out there. Uh, they, they, bought, they bought a company called Cray. That's where they got all this stuff from, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I think the challenge with some of the parts, in my opinion, is always you have to have someone that's willing to do these things. And that, I think, is kind of the big kind of chasm you have to cross is do you believe that this management team, this board, really wants to do it? Or do they believe that in the long term, we are better together kind of narrative, right? I, I think that's the, that, that's the issue. On Excel, it's a highly attractive some of the parts valuation. The question is who's going to execute it. Right. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit as we get uh, get towards the end of our, our time about um, uh, two parallel stories, uh, which is the other HP, HP Inc. That, of course, HP Inc. is the one... That uh, that sells uh, PCs and printers. The ink is the giveaway. Um, so HP Inc. and then Dell, um, which uh, you know, of course, the two of them compete um, head to head in the PC industry. They have uh, their businesses otherwise look a little bit different. Um, and and there's an interesting thing going on in the PC market that I wanted to get your thinking on. So. Um, uh, and 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 that is that both of both HP and Dell, plus the semiconductor uh, companies that serve serve them, right? So Intel, AMD, um, even uh, ARM and Qualcomm 
are all talking about this notion of AI-powered PCs or the AI PC. Intel recently spent like their entire uh, 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 an entire event talking about nothing but AI PCs. What what's your take on that notion? And is there potential for that to drive improving performance for the PC sector? And you know we've seen PC units uh, have declined year over year for like. I don't know, two years straight. So I wonder how you think about that element of the PC story and, uh, you know, the potential for a turnaround in PC demand uh, growth as well. Yeah, um, yeah this, it's, it's a great question because uh, I think people don't focus on PCs as much as they should sometimes, but uh, uh, it, it's a great question to ask. Uh, I guess you just say, if, if I step back and think about the last three years, right, I, I want to say, Eric, PCs were first in into the correction, and so logically, if I play with FIPO, if I think about FIPO first in, first out, PCs should be the first ones to start to see a better recovery versus not. Right. I think that will happen naturally. Uh, to your point, you've had two years of negative declines. Uh, there's a billion two units, 1.2 billion of PC install base that's due for an upgrade, um, and I would argue that this will happen in calendar 24. And when, when the upgrades happen, I actually think that the, the, the underappreciated story here might be we're all more sensitive and aware about what kind of microphone, what kind of camera, what kind of speaker my device has, my laptop has. And we might be willing to pay an extra 50 or $100 to get better of, better of these accessories, right? And so not only do I think you get a, a bit of a nice little bump up in a PC upgrade cycle next year, I think ASPs could go up nicely. Uh, I, I shall say the, a, a small little catalyst for this will be Microsoft will end of life the current operating system sometime in the middle of next year. The minute they do that, historically, all enterprises are forced to upgrade because they want to be in warranty. Right. So, so this is Windows 10. Right. So Windows, yes, Windows 10. Right. The useful life exactly. of Windows 10 ends. I think it's actually 2025 that they cut off support. But um, from looking at this, my understanding is typically you're not waiting to the day before they cut off support, right? So maybe a year in advance or something. Yeah, like, I mean, six months ahead of time is typically when you do it. So my, my gut is next year, middle of next year, this will drive a good enterprise cycle, right? And so I think all of these things, Eric, will ensure that you start to see quicker, better recovery and growth out of PCs. Or Dell and HPQ, HP Inc. should do well from that. Now, to your question around AI, you know, I'll tell you, I've spent time with both these companies. I don't fully appreciate why do I need a better computer just because I'm running an AI model. Uh, now, I do get, you know, if, if you think about this data set, 85% of the people use their computers for data consumption. There's only 10, 15% of people, Eric, that actually use it for data creation. Those folks that use it for data creation, I could see why you need a better PC if you're going to start building and, you know, decoding AI algorithms in it, right? Uh, I could see why that data creator, that 10, 15%, would need a better computer. I don't know why I need a better computer if I'm just consuming the model or getting the learnings from it, right? And so I don't know. I, I would, I would, I would, I would probably be a little less excited about how big of a beneficiary AI could be for the entire PC market. Mm -hmm. But I think, in respect to that, there are some very interesting, unique things that are happening in the PC market that should enable not a lot, but probably a better recovery and a quicker recovery here than anywhere else you'll get in in the tech, IT, hardware landscape. Yeah, you know, there's a couple of other elements of this I wanted to raise. One is, um, if you look at the the sort of, uh, let's call it kind of PC boom 
uh, period, right? In the first two years of the pandemic, right? And in 2021, you had huge growth in PC unit sales. Um, I mean, it, it went from like, I don't know, 260 or 280 million units a year, it went up like 100 million units or something like that. And then we kind of gave it all back, right? So, you know, with this yep. two-year slowdown. But the question I have is whether... Uh, that installed base. So if you think about people who bought their laptops in the early part of the pandemic, those PCs are now three and a half years old. I wonder whether uh, you're going to get a, uh, on the one hand, whether they're all due for replacement, right? Like their the typical lifespan of a laptop is three or four years. So they're all getting a little old. On the other hand, like a lot of those laptops were purchased uh, in a frenzy as we all got stuck at home. Uh, with uh, either just uh, working from home or kids going to school from home, all those kinds of things going on. And so people wanted not just more PCs, but to your point, better PCs, right? Where you actually care more about your, you know, your ability to create content or be on webcasts or whatever. So um, so I wonder whether, uh, w whether that becomes a driver for this replacement cycle or whether it's just slower, because as you say, uh, we are entering kind of a, you know, tricky moment from a consumer spending point of view. Um, and also, maybe we don't need to replace all four of our laptops if we don't have four laptops. No, listen, you know, in, in, the, the, the truth may lie in the middle of all these things, right? But what, what I'd say is if you step back and did look at the data set, right, you added about 130 million PCs in the install base through the pandemic, Right. Right. Now, in all cases, about half of those, I think, Eric, went to K-12 through education system, right? Uh, you know, my daughter, who was in third grade at the start of the pandemic, got a computer way sooner than she would get from her school. <laughs> but the reality is, no one's ever going to take it back now, right? And right. now, all the kids in third grade at that school get a laptop, right? And so I'd say, you, you've added this education vertical where the deployment of computers has happened quicker. The, the interesting part with that is... When you give a laptop to a 10-year-old kid, they tend to break it a lot faster than you and I would. <laughs> and so the replacement cycles are a lot shorter by that, by that very definition, right? And I think that's a structural advantage you're going to have on the install base. On the other side, to your point, you and I probably want computers, but the reality is I still use, and we all still use a lot more Zoom and WebEx and all that stuff than we did five years ago, way before pre-pandemic, right? And mm -hmm. so the need for that computer is a lot higher today than five years. And, you know, I do think it's lower than what it was in 2021, right? All of this means that you have to, in a way, what it means is if the historical upgrade cycle was five years, it likely has to come down to three and a half, four years now because the utilization of that asset and the intensity of the workload that you're running it on has gone up through the pandemic versus not. Interesting. But we'll see. I know uh, Gartner is looking for, I think, about 5% unit growth um, in PCs next year. Um, that would be a welcome uh uh, that would be a welcome recovery from what we've been seeing for the last few quarters. And, and both ID, IDC and, and Gartner have both been saying it looks like we've hit sort of a trough in demand. So we'll sort of see. Now, I, I do want to ask you if if someone is, uh, if as an investor, you're, um, you see opportunity here from, uh, from this trend, how you feel about HP versus Dell, which, first of all, serve somewhat different uh, uh, markets from a PC point of view, and then have like different other sets of businesses and print and, and, and HP and, um, and, and a whole range of enterprise um, 
hardware products in, in the case of, of Dell. How do you feel about the two stocks? Right. Yeah, uh, you know, it, 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 I'll start with Dell on the stock and I'll go to HP from there. Uh, listen, I think Dell is actually a very compelling value name to own for investors. Uh, but you know, in fairness, Dell does a lot of, not just, you know, they do PCs, but they do servers, they do storage, they do a lot of other things, right? Uh, but, you know, my, my gut is, what you could get out of Dell is, I mean, the two things are interesting. One, we think in aggregate, top line was growth 3 to 4%. It's likely, I, we think it's one of the better run companies, better execution, execution companies. 3 to 4% top line should translate to 8, 10% EPS growth. There's a nice little 25 3% dividend yield, not as good as 5 at IBM, but it's a decent yield. Right? And that should give you an 8, 850 EPS story two years out, calendar 25. Stock would work to its hundred bucks, right? That that's kind of a positive narrative. The right. other part with Dell that's very unique, I think, Eric, is they're going down the path of doing four billion dollars plus of buybacks every year. Now, just bear with this math for thirty seconds. Dell's market cap is fifty billion. <clears throat> Michael owns about thirty-five billion of it himself, or about thirty billion of it himself, mm-hmm. which means the market cap you and I and others can trade at is about twenty billion. If, mm-hmm. if Dell is really going to do four billion dollars worth of buybacks, that actually implies they're going to reduce the float that's out there by 20% every year. That's going to be a really interesting, unique tailwind for Dell that no other stock will have, right? Uh, mm-hmm. So I think that's true in Dell. We actually like it as a value play. Um, you know, HPQ, in fairness, I would probably say a lot of the same things. Uh, I think the, the caveat with HPQ, the two caveats I would have, PCs will do well, but the two caveats we would have is what will happen to the print business and they almost are in this competition with the Japanese uh, companies, because most of the other print companies are Japanese entities, uh, who are using the collapsing yen, if you may, right now, as a pricing lever to compete against HPQ, right? So what happens with that narrative? I think HP can manage it, but I would say the competitive environment in print is a lot more scary than anywhere else. Uh, the other part, and this is the opposite of the Dell discussion we had on buybacks, uh, you know, about... 11, 12% of HPQ stock was owned or is owned by Berkshire Hathaway, by Warren Buffett. Mm-hmm. But over the last three weeks, every three, four days, you get a Form 4, a filing from them saying they're selling 5 million shares. They own 100 million shares. It's going to take a couple of months for them to get rid of it if, that, if that's the intent. But, but optically, that puts a lot of pressure on the stock when you have someone as well-regarded as you know Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway selling 5 million shares of HPQ every three, four days. I think you almost have to get through that mental headwind, if you may, before right. you can start to own the name. But my goodness, Dell is a better name. If you can underwrite or get past this Berkshire exit, I think HPQ gets fairly interesting as well. Right. Now, you know, you talk about uh, share buybacks, and I, I note uh, that HP had been very aggressively buying back stock, like around a billion dollars quarter or something like that. Um until uh, they did, uh, uh, they did a large acquisition. Poly, right? They yeah. bought Poly, which is of course uh, uh, it's the old Polycom. Plus, also they had merged with uh, Plantronics, the head, headset company, um, and yep. they 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 levered up to do that deal. Um, and they've largely uh, they, they tremendously slowed their stock purchases um, to do that. They're uh, they're excited about about owning the asset, but it has changed their capital allocation uh, in in the near term uh, to some degree. Uh, you're you're hundred percent right. And, and you know what, what they did essentially was they paused the buybacks because of the deal and the leverage that it added. Uh, now that they're back to a normal spot with their leverage, they're back in this one and a half to two times gross leverage. 
they are looking to restart the buybacks again, right? So they will do the buybacks again. Now, as a person of flow, they won't be as powerful as Dell's, but they're going to start it. Uh, but the math I would have is, listen, uh, we think they'll buy back about $2 billion worth of stock in calendar 24. At today's stock price, Eric, that probably means they'll buy 65, 70 million shares back, which is great. Uh, the, the offset to that is, you know, Berkshire Hathaway, based on the last filings, owns about 100 million shares, right? So right. you have that right. other, other kind of it, side of story. It, about it, it. As you say, it's, it is kind of an overhang if uh, if Warren's going to be slowly slowly un unloading his shares. I would note the other thing about uh, HP that, that I think is worth just keeping in mind, of course, is that, you know, this has historically also been true, but the stock is statistically very inexpensive. I mean, it's trading at like, what, less than or eight times earnings or something like that. And uh, I don't know, a small fraction of, I don't know, maybe 0.5 times sales around that range. Yeah. No, you, I mean, listen, it, 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 you're 100% right, Eric. The valuation is very uh, generous, very low at this point. Uh, and, and I do think to some degree what that means is to the extent someone is willing to be patient and say, I can look past this Berkshire Hathaway thing and own this for the next 12 months, you know, I do think it's a 350 EPS story, $3.50 of earnings power. And on a 10, 11 multiple, this should be a 35 to $40 stock in 12 months from today. You just have to get through some period of this volatility before you can get there. But but I do think the upside is fairly attractive given how depressed the valuation is right now. Right. And and it does have also about a 4% yield. Uh, so the, you get a little bit of yeah. uh, little income on that too. One last thing I'd say about HP, you know, they had a um, an analyst meeting uh, recently, uh, which I think you attended. And one thing I'm, I'm curious about is it, it felt like at some point they, they kind of flittingly hinted at the idea that they could um, do something from a, a capital allocation point of view, like perhaps there are non-core assets that they could sell. They have, you know, they do things in like commercial printing and, you know, they print things like printers can do banners. They do like, they have a 3D printing business that they don't talk about very much. Do you think there's any room for HP to slim itself down and get rid of some of the sort of secondary non-core segments? Yeah, you know, um, I mean, they certainly have a few of these assets that they could look to divest. Uh, but the part I tell you, I struggle with, Eric, is I, they're not worth that much, right? Uh, the things like 3D printing, for example, that you could potentially see them look to offload or divest. Uh, but but it it doesn't it won't move the needle in a very profound manner on a leverage or buyback perspective. So I think they could look at it. I just don't think it's as material of a tailwind as one would like it to be. Okay. All right. Well, we've uh, we've gone over our time. Um, I uh, I appreciate. Uh, uh, your uh, uh, your coming on the show again, Amit. Very uh, very excited to have you, and we will of course have you again on uh, before too long. Uh, thanks for being here. Much appreciated. Pleasure as always, Eric. Thanks a lot. Take care. And and thanks to our audience for tuning in. Um, please join us again tomorrow. Uh, we'll have Market Watch retirement reporter Alessandra Melito. We'll be talking to. Uh, Bob Reese, who's the Vice President of Medicare Sales for EL, they'll be talking about Medicare and questions that you might have or should have about uh, about Medicare. Thanks for being with us again. Uh, come back again soon. Be well, stay safe.
The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.